We've all got questions about the Bible and Christianity. Some of us are Christians and want to know how best to live for God and show our love for Him. Some of us are curious about what it means to follow Jesus. And some of us are skeptical of the idea of religion in general. Whatever your background, we invite you into these conversations that strive to take an honest look at what the Bible has to say on a wide variety of subjects. Each week, we will discuss questions that have been sent in from all around the world and try to find truth and practical application in God's Word. If you have any questions or follow-up comments, contact us anytime by emailing info at broadwaycoc.com. I'm Jed Lovejoy, and these are Conversations with Dan. All right, so hello and welcome to another one of our Conversations here with Dan. See, that's the way that I always open them up, even in a different space. Uh, But for those of you that are watching this, it'll be on the following Thursday, Thursday after Easter, if you're watching them in order. Uh, This is the one we're doing in front of a live audience, so we've got a few friends here with us. Some of them look like they're barely alive. (laughs) That's not nice. Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That's not nice. But we're going to go ahead and we're going to be covering a question, uh, a topic for this first half. Then we're going to take a little break. Give them maybe some goods. Okay. Please. Give them some coffee. Yeah, decaf coffee. It's, Let them write down question. It's not time. Yeah. And then maybe we'll do some question and answers afterwards. But as always, we do encourage questions and comments. We've especially got a growing number of people listening to our program on podcasts and a lot of comments coming in on YouTube. So we're grateful for all of those opportunities. Yep. So now to the question at hand. Uh, the question was basically, how does the church interact with culture in today's day and age? And so the direction I think we're going to approach this from is there are passages in the Bible which seem to be speaking about cultural issues. So how do we take those from their context in the Bible and do we or should we apply them to our modern cultural context? All right. Do you have a specific passage you want to talk about? Today? Well, this I told them that we kind of cheated a little bit in the okay. last. Normally, all of our conversations are kind of a cold call. I tell Dan what the conversation is, and we just roll with it. Uh, but for this one, Dan actually submitted a couple of passages, and I went off with them. But the first one that you sent me that I think we should look at is in Second Timothy, chapter two, verses nine and ten. Uh, it's First Timothy chapter oh. two verses nine and ten, but that is what it says. That is what it says. So yeah. I have a two <laughs> one. Yeah, there we go. You All right, go ahead and read it for us. Or you want me to? I think you can go ahead and read it this time. All right, um, let's start back with verse eight. First uh, okay. Timothy two verse eight. There's a lot of discussion these days on the role of women and whether that role is some is a cultural thing that we're getting out of scripture from the culture. If it's really something that the Bible intends for all ages. So starting in verse 8, he says, I would therefore that the men should pray in every place, raising up holy hands without wrath and arguing. Likewise also the women, let them adorn themselves with modest apparel, with shamefastness and sobriety, uh, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but that which is proper for women professing godliness through good works. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on with uh, let the women learn in quietness in all subjection. So uh, the question I guess you're asking is how much is this a cultural thing? Yes. And how much is this something that 
I mean, uh, would apply to us today. Yeah, because I mean, things like, you know, not with braided hair. I mean, yeah. lots, lots of ladies walk around with braided hair and it's not a major sign of Anything. Yeah, really? right. <laughs> so, so the idea here is, you know, based on modern discussion, is there a role for men and women in the church? Are there specific roles? Are these things merely cultural, which we shouldn't look at today? Yeah. If, if you go to this same passage, and you'll see how Paul um, argues here uh, at the end of this, in, in verse 12, he says, he, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to learn in quietness. That word quietness uh, doesn't mean total silence. It's, it's the word hesukia, and it means um, an attitude of, of uh, non-aggressiveness, an attitude of, of uh, not being uh, outward. It's, it's more of an attitude. Okay. Uh, there's a different word in a different passage we'll talk about here in a minute. So, just, but, but the point is that the women were not to be in the role of teaching in the assembly. So it's not that they couldn't communicate or be part of the dialogue that might be happening, but they weren't supposed to then assert themselves? Is that? Well, there's another passage that I think suggests that in the major assembly, in the assembly where they're taking the Lord's Supper and all that, mm -hmm. that they weren't supposed to be a part of, this, of what you might call a Socratic dialogue where there would be a back and forth because that really was a synagogue method okay. of the men teaching in synagogue because uh, that was often a method. But if you go down here to verse 13 in the passage we're dealing with here, right. he says, for, this is the reasoning, yeah. for Adam was created first, then Eve, and it was not Adam that was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So whatever Paul's talking about goes back to creation in some way, shape, or form. And uh, the interesting thing is we're, we're talking about culture. Let, let's take the dress part of this first because you yes. mentioned the golden go pearls yes. and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Um, it's interesting that Ephesus, where Timothy was the evangelist, uh, his advice or his teaching about the dress is slightly different than the teaching was in Corinth. Right. If, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter um, 11, okay. and there he's talking about um, the, the way particularly women were to dress in the assembly. Mm -hmm. uh, pick it up here, start at verse two, and then read down there a little bit, down through about verse six there. Sure. Uh, it says, now I commend you because you rem remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I promise I'm getting there. Yep. Uh, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a, for a wife to cut off her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. All right, and the word here for cover your head is katakalupto. Katakalupto is a Greek word which means to cover your head. It's like a, a burka. It's like we're not talking about a little doily on top of your head. Or a little straw hat on the yeah. top of your head. It's a full. We're talking about a full head covering with only your eyeballs mm. sticking out. In fact, 
This word is the opposite word for the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is uh, apocalypto, which means to uncover, to take off the veil, to reveal <laughs> stuff. And this word is the word for cover up. Yeah. Okay. So when you have a passage like this and the other... Well, see, in this passage in Corinthians, he said, wear your veil. Right. In Ephesus, he didn't say that. In Ephesus, in Ephesus he said, mm -hmm. you want to be modest and you want to not be overly, you know, doing your hair and wearing expensive jewels and, and pearls and expensive clothes and trying to stand out as yeah. much as you can. The principle is the same in both passages. Okay. But the application of that particular principle is a little bit different. And the application of the principle of modesty seemed to be dependent a little bit on the culture of those cities. The principle, however, was the same. I want yeah. you to be modest in church. So, so if we were to take that into the modern context, we're saying that we don't necessarily have to have a full head covering. Right. We don't necessarily need to avoid braided hair or maybe gold jewelry. It's we need to think about modesty within the context of our culture. That's right. We need to be modest. But in both passages, mm -hmm. unlike the difference in the culture and dress, in both passages, Paul mentioned the women being silent in the assembly. Now, he did mention in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, in verse 5, any woman praying or prophesying with her head uncovered. Mm -hmm. And we do see that they were prophesying. But in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul told them, don't do it. Hmm. He said they were doing it, but he, he didn't want them to do it. Now, here's my second question. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I knew we were going to go there. With these, with these passages, both times Paul starts using a lot of the, the statements he makes start with, I don't permit or I mm -hmm. ask them to. Right at, and right after Paul says the thing about women keeping silent in 1 Corinthians 14, mm -hmm. in verse 37, he said, now if anybody thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, mm -hmm. let him acknowledge that the things that I am writing you are the Lord's command. Mm -hmm. And see, when, when Christ spoke through Paul, it was Paul talking, but it was Christ talking through him. See? So I guess does that, that goes probably a little beyond what we're going to talk about right now, but it goes to how do you view Scripture? Okay. Like if you're going to trust that what Paul said there is true, then his words apply just as much as anything else. Absolutely. Whereas there's a lot of people who view these passages from Paul as kind of not as binding like Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And and we'll cover that in a minute too. But back to our comparison of these two passages, mm -hmm. the dress that he that he says you need to do was a slightly different. The principle was the same. Yeah. However, in both cases, as he, as the discussion continues and he finishes the discussion, he ends up saying that I do not allow the women to teach in the assembly. Mm. That was the bottom line. And that seems to be a principle that held true. So when we get down to the core of this and kind of how it applies, it would be less about the specifics that are being said to how to dress or how not to dress. And it gets more to the heart of the what is kind of that order of headship. That's exactly right. And you'll notice in the beginning of chapter 11, he, he states there that the head of the woman is the man. The head of man is Christ. The head of Christ is God. And if you go to Ephesians 5, he says the same thing in chapter 5, verse 23, 22 to 25. Same thing about headship. That seems to be a general principle. Uh, it's not a headship of oppression. It's not a headship where we don't listen to women. 
I mean, we got Phoebe, uh, the deaconess or Sincrea, the servant of the church at Sincrea. In Romans 16, you've got Aquila and Priscilla, who was a great leader in the church yeah. in Rome. You've got all kinds of uh, references in Romans to women who were very important. You've got uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother that yeah. I mentioned. Uh, you've got this whole class of widows in 1 Timothy 5 that were on the permanent support list of the church and working full-time for the Lord. Yeah. So women and women's role is not denigrated at all. Yeah. In, in they actually the played a fairly high role in the early church just right. because they were so benef beneficial to the church. And always, where would we be yeah. without the work of women? So, but, it's, so again, it's that sort of, if we have our headship in the right order, you know, because again, God didn't oppress Christ. Christ didn't oppress his. Therefore, right. once we get down to the man and the woman, we shouldn't be any more oppressive. Right, and, and in the Ephesians 5 passage, it's talking about how if the, if the man, Ephesians 5, 25 and following, is really loving and looking out for the interests of his wife, as he should, nourishing and cherishing her as his own flesh, mm -hmm. then there's not going to be any put down or any, any neglect or any denigration of the other person. It's going to be a respectful looking out for your best interests. And the First Corinthians passage, First Corinthians 14, 35, says that there's a different relationship at home between a man and his wife and the discussions they have yeah. than there is in the public assembly. And we could get into that another time. Yeah. <laughs> one, other, one other thing I want to point out about the First Timothy 2 passage. Okay. In, in First Timothy 2, 8, where he says... I would therefore that the men pray in every place, lifting up holy hands. Mm -hmm. In the Mishnah, there's a, there's an entire section of the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the uh, the teaching of the Pharisees from 200 years before Christ till 200 years after Christ. Okay, and in those recorded teachings, there's a whole section called Barakoth or prayers or blessings. Okay, and there's also another section called Yadayim, which means hands. But anyway, in the Mishnah, it talks about, and these would have been Paul's teachers, how that in the synagogue, there were only certain people that could go in front of the ark and lift up the hands. Mm. These were the men who went in front of the ark of the scroll and led the congregation in prayer. And there's repeated qualifications for the men that could go before the ark and lift up the hands and lead the congregational prayers. So again, we're talking about that congregational type setting and right. Paul would have known all of those things. And when Paul said her. this, it's very obvious that he's talking about that principle. I would therefore that the men pray lifting up the holy hands. They're the ones I want leading yeah. the assembly. But um, the, the women were praying and, and the other thing I wanted to say on this was they often did corporate prayers. For example... Um, in, in some fellowships, they still say the Lord's Prayer out loud. We've done that before. It's scriptural. Or we may take a, a, one of the psalms that is a prayer. And the leader may begin to lead the prayer and say, let's all say it together. And the entire congregation says out loud the prayer. Well, the women are praying. Yeah. But they're not going before the ark and lifting up the hands, you see. So and I think not that's not exact silence. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Okay. So I think that's as far as this first passage and then to take it kind of the culture at large, like what we started talking about, mm -hmm. it's 
in these sort of passages, there will obviously be differences in the culture and the way that we interact. You know, the culture of the United States is going to be different than the culture in England or India or Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. But these general principles that it's driving at are going to be the same. Are going to be the same. That's right. And so, and to to kind of go to where we were headed in the last part of this, mm -hmm. the biblical view on this is going to be countercultural. Yes. And in Roman society back then, women, some women were very, what's the word I'm looking for? I want to be very careful. But, but it was, women took great leadership and, and often were the masters of great plans and did all kinds of things. And, and it was a bit countercultural even in that time for, for this role to be stated. For women, hmm. but from the very beginning, uh, love your enemy. You know, pray for them that that persecute you. Yeah. Uh, one man, one woman. Uh, Jesus is teaching on marriage. This hmm. uh, teaching on on truth telling and and honesty and all this kind of stuff was countercultural. Yeah. Lack of violence countercultural. And so even today. It may not be comfortable to say that this is still the pattern we believe in. That's my point. Yeah. But we are a counter-cultural movement. Hmm. And we're counter-cultural because we're following Jesus. And we're supposed to influence the culture, not let the culture pull us to their, where they are. Fair enough. Okay. So let's keep moving. All right. Let's go to passage number two. Okay. Which you had from 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Is that right this time? Yep. 1 Corinthians okay. 10. 1 <laughs> Corinthians chapter 10. This is one that when I read it, I think I took one tack at it and you have another. So mm -hmm. maybe we'll play off both of them here. Okay. Uh, but 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 21. Yep. I'll read it. I'll read it this time. Uh, I went too far. 1 Corinthians 10. Here we go. Uh, the cup of blessing that we bless is not a participation in the blood. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all participate in the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? that the food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply what the pagans sacrifice. They offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with the demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. All right, and one more verse. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So here's the thing. They lived in a culture in Corinth where there was paganism in the, in the very air that they breathed. Right. They were idols temples to all kinds of different gods and goddesses. And on the hill of Corinth outside of town, there was the temple of uh, Athena or uh, uh, Artemis, or not Artemis, the, uh, the love goddess. Anyway, Aphrodite. There we go. Aphrodite. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> But there all were thousands of cult prostitutes. All of the meat practically that was sold in town had been taken to one of these idols' temples mm -hmm. and sacrificed. Um, 
doing some research this last year, I went back into the Oxyrhynchus papyri. And these are papyrus uh, records from uh, the, the early centuries about Greece and about some of these different things. And they have numerous examples in those papyri of invitations that went out from pagan families to their friends to invite them to a meal in the temple of Serapis or a meal in the temple of this other god. And it was a meal in honor of one of their children, but there would be a sacrifice to the gods and all the friends would come together and eat this meal. And then, uh, of course, in that same setting, there were cult prostitutes and all this stuff. But there was invitation after invitation to these meals. Sometimes they would have the idolatrous meal in their own home. They may have some priest officiating, but they would have the meat from the idols' temples in their home. So it literally was part of their everyday life. Their social life, and if you were going to have friends, you were going to be invited to these things all the time. And, and very much in the pagan mindset was that to, to give a sacrifice to this God and to appease this God and then to eat this meal with this God... It put the person in some kind of intimacy with this spiritual being. Okay. And, and it was an intimacy where we're trying to be pleasing to that spiritual being. Paul makes the exact same point in verse 16 mm-hmm. about our attempt to be intimate with our God through the Lord's Supper. Right. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a koinonia, a sharing, a participation? In the blood of Christ. So in today's context, as most people who watch this know, we're in Paducah, Kentucky. Yeah, we're not we have a lot of idols temples here. Yeah, we don't we don't have any temples around here and I haven't ever been invited to a meal from an idol sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So how how does this and I'll let you go with your thought first, how does this kind of carry over to a modern context? Well, in a number of ways. We're, we're next weekend, we're having Walk for Water and Mani Pagadi Pali's coming. And in India, Hinduism and, and all that, every single stage of life, Hindu priests are about wedding showers, mm-hmm. is full of Hinduism and, and Hindu, Hindu ritual and, and marriages. And when they turn 12, and every, every point in life has this very kind of stuff in it, yeah. And these people are invited all the time to this stuff, and they have to choose how much can I be involved in that and be a Christian, see? And so, they really can't. Yeah, so and there's still places that they might be dealing with this exact thing. That exact thing. I have several, and have had for years, several Native American students mm-hmm. in the Global Preacher Training. Yeah. And these Native Americans, they're raised in, in earth paganism and animal paganism, and they'll tell you, you know, and, and all of their marriage rituals and, and young person rituals and manhood rituals and everything are completely tied up with paganism. Mm-hmm. And they have to choose when they become Christians that I can't be part of that because I'm not going to have fellowship with that. Yeah. Uh, now, there are things, other things in our culture that um, are sort of like that. And these are things where um, in, in the First Corinthians passage, by the way, the passage is First Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. Okay. It's a three-chapter discussion. And he ends up in chapter 10 talking about Israel and how they flirted with idolatry in all these little different ways. And it finally got them uh, sucked into where that they, were, they fell in the desert. Right. And my mom used to quote me all the time, uh, let him that thinketh... He standeth, 
take heed lest he fall. I think that's like 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. And, and then the next verse says, No temptation has mm -hmm. taken you, but yep. such is common to man. Mm -hmm. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but will with the temptation provide the way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. Yep. And that's where most people stop. But the very next verse says, Flee from idolatry. Flee means don't get up as close as you can with it. Kind of rub up against it. I say it's not going to bother me. Somehow. It's not going to bother me. It's going to be okay. And but but that's flirt. Yeah. Flee is not that. Flee is run the other direction. Right. If you go back to chapter six, verse eighteen, it says, "Flee from fornication." All right. So so are you getting at? We may not deal with the idol specifically, but there may be something that we're yes. with that's taking the place yes. of Christ. Yes, okay. I think I think we flirt sometimes with the culture of fornication in our cities, with the culture of of alcohol mixed with fornication. All these we flirt with those places and venues and so forth where there are things going on and we may say that we're not crossing the line, but we're doing exactly what Paul told these people don't do. Mm. We're flirting instead of fleeing. So we're supposed to be countercultural. We're supposed to say, we don't get involved in certain things. And instead of getting too close, we need to go ahead and say, we've chosen a different way. Now, are these, if, if that's kind of the concept that we're pulling out of this, that we shouldn't- For us. For us, yes. But, but for the Native Americans, for my friends in Malawi, for my friends in Tan Tanzania, for my friends in Nandigama, mm -hmm. this is just as modern today as it can possibly be. Okay. But for those of us who don't have that, does it just apply to the moral things that you're dis that you're kind of implying? No. Or does it apply to also you? spiritual things? Let's think in our country and even in, in Latin America, El Dia de los Muertos. Mm -hmm. The day of the dead. Yeah. You're right in the middle of it, right there. Okay. So just it's a cultural thing that may be distracting from following Christ? Is that what we're kind of saying? Well, yes. In, in fact, you, you know that there's a popularization today of, of mediums and spiritists. Oh, Miss Cleo. And those that would communicate with the dead. Right? Uh, yeah. And there's a whole there's a whole pagan ideology that goes with the idea of the day of the dead, and you've got your ancestors, and you're taking them food out there, and you're asking your ancestors to kind of watch over you, and yeah. you're praying to the dead. When you pray to the saints, you're praying to the dead. You realize that that's strictly forbidden in Scripture. That's necromancy. Yeah. And and so we're we're flirting with paganism in ways that we shouldn't be. So that's it more direct one okay but anything we would make excuses for that gets us so close to sin and we say look I'm strong enough it's not gonna bother me I'm okay with being in this and then maybe we pull somebody else in that's not strong you know that's that's in the same neighborhood of all this kind of stuff hmm I don't know I feel like sometimes that could be more cultural like to start putting certain things like what you're talking about as a very cultural item and less of a direct, like I'm partaking of idols so that I'm beginning to worship something else. Right. Uh, right. 
because that's like if I truly fall into something, you know, let's say it's alcoholism or whatever, that truly takes over my life versus just, oh, if I'm, you know, having a drink with friends or whatever, and that's just part of daily life. But his point here is if you go back to, for example, chapter 8, mm-hmm. go back to chapter 8, and go to verse, um, go to start with verse 7 and read down through verse 10 there. Okay. Verse 11, 7 through 11. 7 to 11 from chapter 8. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this is right, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge of eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to the idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. There you go. So his argument is where that, and to take your modern day illustration, you may feel like you can do this, but if your brother who sees you doing it and saying, if Jed is doing it, then I can do it. Yeah. And then he gets dragged into uh, problems with alcohol or whatever else, then you've destroyed your brother for whom Christ died. So mm. your actions affect more than you. Your actions affect those people around you. And so all of us who would, let's put it this way, all of us, and, and by the way, this is the first part of Paul's argument with these people. Yeah. The discussion isn't over until chapter 10, verse 14, Where when, we when he says, flee from idolatry. That's where he comes down at the end of class and says, boom. See? Yeah. And a lot of Sunday school classes start out in chapter 8 here, where he's just opening the debate. Yeah. And they close up the discussion. He's not <laughs> done. Chapter 9, he gives three rights that he had to do that he chose not to do for the sake of his brethren. Yeah. Chapter 10, he shows how the Israelites flirted and they all died in the desert. Okay. Then he says, flee from idolatry. And then in the passage you read earlier, he says, how can you possibly eat at the table of the Lord or the table of demons? When you have your specific religious ways of preparing food or thinking about food. Ooh, like kosher or whatever. Yeah, does that also kind of fit into this, even though it may be focusing on God, like in the case of kosher, that's still the Jewish way of still trying to follow the law and all these different things. But to a Christian, is that something that could end up falling under these sort of things? I don't think so, because... The dietary laws of Israel, they're healthy. If you want to do them, that's fine. It's when we start binding those on other people. Mm. And we say, you've got to eat this way. Jesus didn't say we had to eat that way. In fact, the Bible says very clearly in Acts chapter 10 and in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus made all meats clean, all foods are clean. 1 Timothy chapter 2, no, chapter... Chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. No, no. 1 Timothy. Wait a minute. Where are we at? I'm having one of those moments that I told Dustin I was going to Justin I was going to have. 1 Timothy chapter 4 is what it is. And it's verse 4 and 5. Read it for us. Okay. 
For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is rejected with thanks. If it is received, sorry, if it is received with thanksgiving. For if it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So there's nothing wrong with any food you want to eat, but if you want to put yourself on some diet, and if you don't want any bacon and you don't want any sausage and all that kind of stuff, mm. knock yourself out. Eat vegetables, you'll look good like Daniel. Okay. So it's so if we start following a dietary thing for health reasons, whatever, but if we start making that a, oh, there's some religious significance behind it, we might. Even if you want to follow it because it was God's choice in the Old Testament and you're doing that to respect God, that's fine. Just don't bind it on anybody else. Don't make it a requirement in your mind or any others for salvation. That's what the the misuse of the law was. I hear a little bit of crossover between the previous point made and that one. Yeah, you're talking about with the alcohol issue. Well, just as the one as the one example. Yeah, one one example here was about how our behavior. The first one was about how our behavior can lead other people into behavior that causes them to sin, even if we think we have the right. Yeah. To do something. Yeah, that was the first example. This is really something different. Okay. All right. I think I hear more similarity there. Okay. (laughs) All right. So I think that we'll close out with this third passage. And maybe... I think this is a good place to close out and answer those other questions. You think so? Yeah, I think this is good. Okay. We might... The the passage he's talking about. Yeah. Go ahead. Use it as a quick... um, because his final passage was from 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 11 and 12. And it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that that day when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Mm-hmm. See, that was the big principle we're trying to get across. Right. We're supposed to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. We're supposed to influence the culture around us to be more like Jesus and not be defiled by the culture and be taken off into things that Jesus wouldn't approve of. That's the bottom line. Yeah, because when we read a lot of these passages, especially the writings of Paul, he does get into a lot of cultural issues that were affecting the various churches. Mm and so we can get really wrapped up in the details of each of those. But this is kind of the main point. This is a main point. You know, it's, it's obviously Peter, but it's that same idea. Yep. That there are ways that Christians are to stand out from the world. It just may look different in your cultural context. There you go. Fair assessment? Mostly yes. Mostly yes? So how would you wrap it up then? That's, that's good. We just need to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth and bring people toward Jesus instead of doing things the world's way. Okay. Should we let them have some coffee? Let's do it. So I'll close this section off here and then we'll let them go. But thanks again for tuning in and watching our conversation. I think there may be a slight gap for those who are watching it on video, but hopefully not too much. But thanks again for watching. Send in your comments and questions. We'll see y'all again next week. All right. Bye-bye. All right.
Cut, yeah. <laughs> Thanks again for listening to these weekly conversations between myself and Dr. Dan Owen. Conversations with Dan is an outreach and teaching ministry of the Broadway Church of Christ in Paducah, Kentucky. You can find us online through most of the major social media sites or through our website, broadwaycoc.com.